with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 32. Ephesians 4, 20 through 32. Dr. Rogers is on vacation for three weeks, and for the next three Sundays, starting this morning, Tucker and Troy and I will be conducting a three-part mini-series on the subject of anger. So we're beginning this morning studying Ephesians, where this subject is mentioned and dealt with in connection with the whole range of issues of sanctification that the Apostle deals with here. Let's begin reading in chapter 4 at verse 20. Hear the Word of God. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the Word of God. What does your anger typically look like? Sulky self-pity or red-hot rage, as the sermon title speaks of it? Or maybe for most of us, somewhere in between most of the time. Grumbling, irritability, or outright hostility. Silent stewing, or explosive words. Punishing body language and tone of voice, or sharp-edged cynicism with your words. Anger takes many forms. It comes in many expressions. Some people hit the roof and then get, get over it pretty fast. Others go into their shell Others go on the rampage for days. Some people raise their voices. Others get quiet. Some people give plenty of signals that they are angry. Others make guerrilla strikes out of nowhere, it seems. Some use anger to intimidate and control people around them. And others use anger to sulk and avoid people in their lives. In other words, you don't have to rant and rave to have a problem with sinful anger in your life. Most of us know that there is such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, God's anger, God's holy justice and wrath is always righteous. The Bible makes that very clear. And along those lines, we know that Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple courts with a righteous indignation. He was not sinning in any way when he did that. 
In fact, the title of our little series here is taken from this verse in Ephesians 4 that I read to you, verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. That implies that it is possible to be angry and not be sinning. But because of our sinful hearts and the corruption that still remains, even though we are born of the Spirit, if, if we've come to know Christ, we know that even righteous anger can easily become sinful. That's why the apostle goes on to say, right after that phrase, he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let the sun go down on your, your anger. In other words, you can't let anger fester in your heart, even righteous anger. If you do, it will very easily become sinful, even if the cause might be righteous. Verse 27, you will be giving the devil a foothold. And I know that for me, it's usually a matter of minutes, not hours before righteous indignation, if I ever have that in a pure sense, which I doubt, becomes sinful. It doesn't take long. So, in verse 31, we're told, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. In other words, part of our clear calling as believers who know Jesus Christ, have, who have trusted in Him, and who are seeking to do His will, part of His calling in our lives is to uproot sin, sinful anger in all of its forms and expressions in our lives. So, how do we do that? I want us to look at five aspects of uprooting anger. Five brief points. They have to be brief because there are five of them. And I want us to think about how we carry out the command here that we're given in God's Word. First of all, identify your anger. Identify your anger. Begin to understand the ways you get angry. What are the types of situations where your anger comes out? What are the typical ways in your life of reacting to people around you in anger? The command says, get rid of all rage and anger. We're to put off anger. Well, you can't do that until you honestly face up to and see where the anger is in your life. You may be angry, and you don't even acknowledge it. I know that as a young Christian and as a young man, I would be angry, and I wouldn't even know it. I wouldn't even acknowledge it to myself. I would think that it's just righteousness, and I was right in the particular situation that uh, was happening at the time, and my typical manner of responding was just to get quiet, and I wasn't even aware, for the most part, when I was angry. Maybe that's how it is with you. Some People are going about their lives, and they are angry most of the time, but they refuse to face up to it. Begin to honestly evaluate the situations when you find yourself getting angry. Whatever form your anger takes, from low-level grumpiness to full-scale rage, from yelling to sulking, from going on the attack to retreating into punishing silence. And pray for the Lord to help you identify the anger in your life. Ask Him, Lord, 
Open my eyes. Help me to honestly see myself as you see me. And ask other people who are in your life to help you, people who are close to you. You can be sure that, for the most part, they're very much aware of your anger, even if you're not. The other week, I went out to do some weeding in the per our per perennial garden along the back of our house. Patty was out of town for a couple days that week visiting her parents. And I stood back there in the backyard looking at the garden and scratching my chin and thinking to myself, you know, either those are nice, big, healthy weeds or they're perennials. And I'm not sure which they are. So I thought it was safest, plus it was easier just to wait until Pat Patty got home, and then, you know, we both went out there, and I said, is this a perennial or a weed? You know, which is it? Which goes? I realized I needed help. I needed pa Patty to help me identify the weeds in that garden. And so you also need to learn to identify the weeds of anger where they crop up in the garden of your life. And maybe it would take a good friend or your spouse to help you to see that. John Calvin wrote about the essence of true knowledge which is essentially knowing God and knowing ourselves then in light of God. And that's certainly true when it comes to anger. Begin by identifying the anger in your life. Secondly, search out the root causes. Search out the root causes of anger. Search out the motives of your heart, especially in light of what Scripture teaches about root and fruit, about our hearts and our outward behavior and actions and words. Anger, you see, is really not a root. Anger is a fruit. It's a window on our souls, on our hearts. Notice how in verse 22, the apostle describes the way we're supposed to grow in Christ. And he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. He's calling them to live in a new way. And he says, you need to be putting off certain things, certain ways, your old way of life, which is corrupt by its deceitful desires. Now, that phrase, deceitful desires, that gets to the root of why we do what we do. And there are many kinds of these deceitful desires. They, they're deceitful in that they're very subtle. They deceive us. We think they are good things. Uh, they're, 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 they're things that are wrong in the sense that we love and we worship them and we value them too much so that they become, in some degree, in the place of the Lord in our lives. That's how deceiving they are. They might be good in and of themselves and in a certain place, but they, they begin to rule us. They get out of place. What are some examples of this? Well, ask yourself, what do I really desire in this particular situation? What do I want so much that I'm acting this way? Do I want to be in control? Do I want to have things go my way? Isn't that what most of us want? We want our agenda being done? Or maybe, do I want to just be left alone? Do I want peace and quiet in my life? Do I want to get even with somebody else? Do I want to get revenge? And really, when we think of the way uh, righteous anger so easily morphs into sinful anger, often it has to do with this sense of justice which gets twisted. We want justice, but we want it particularly in a self-oriented way. We want it for us. It's a self-oriented, sinful ju justice that's not like the Lord's. 
Maybe it's that we want uh, to punish the other per- person involved. Or maybe your anger springs from, from a root that has more to do with that biblical theme of the fear of man. Maybe you want to be thought of well by someone else, and something is going wrong with that, so you get angry. Angry because you know that person isn't going to think well of you. Maybe you want to be respected. Maybe you want others to approve of you in some way. Or we want others to praise us or like us or maybe to think highly of our appearance. Or we want success or something else. You see, we could go on and on speaking about the root causes of anger. And when we don't get what we want, then anger starts to show up. It's a fruit that indicates a deeper root that has to do with the fundamental issue of what we value and worship at that moment in our lives. You see, searching out the root causes of your anger means that you stop making excuses for the anger that crops up in your life. We all tend to be very good at pointing the finger of blame for our anger at anything and everything else other than the remaining sinfulness and selfishness of our own hearts. Isn't it easy to do that, to make excuses for our anger, to say to ourselves or to say to those around us, well, I was just born that way. That's just the way I am. My personality is just like that, so I really can't do anything about it. Or, you know, it's because of the way I was raised. My parents were like that. My siblings were like that. We always did that. That's just ingrained in my life. That's just the way it is. Or we blame the circumstances around us. Well, it's the boss. You know, if it wasn't for him or her, you know, it's my family. It's my husband. It's my wife. If, if they weren't acting the way they were acting, I wouldn't be angry all the time. And, or maybe, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. If I just had gotten enough sleep or I'm on this diet, I'm not getting enough to eat, and I didn't have lunch. There are all kinds of ways that we blame others, our circumstances, the, the sit, situation of our lives. And yes, all those kinds of things are certainly occasions for temptation to sinful anger. I don't mean to minimize the power of some of those things, the power of our background, the way we were raised, the habits that have been formative in our lives. Yes, that's all very real. But ultimately, Scripture says that the sin in our lives rises from our own hearts. Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And that's a fundamental principle of Scripture he's bringing out there. He's saying when when bad stuff comes out of your life, when sin in its various forms comes out of your life, the Christian can't say, oh, it's from something outside of me. On Judgment Day, God's not going to say, oh, I understand it was because of this and that and this and that. No, it comes from within, out of our hearts. That's how it is with all of us think about the way this comes out in my life. Some of the things that tend to rule me are my desire for my agenda to be fulfilled in a day. I like efficiency. And if things aren't efficient around me, then I tend to get angry. My wife can, you know, joke with me and laugh with me about this because it's obvious. We can be standing there at the store in the checkout line. You know, I always pick the wrong line that, you know, Murphy's Law comes into play, and my line's going real slow, and they're doing a price check on some item, you know, in the back. And, and, you know, I can kind of laugh about it now, because I know that I'll start getting antsy and think, why isn't this store doing things right? You know, 
why isn't this efficient? Of course, it all revolves around me. If it were that line that was going slowly and my line were going fast, I wouldn't even think about it. Or the area of desiring comfort and peace. Is that a wrong thing to want? No, none of these things may be wrong to a degree, but when they start to rule us, and I want those things more than I want Jesus Christ and His will to be carried out in my life, then it turns into sin. So you and I must search out the root desires and understand the desires that tend to rule us and show up as bad fruit. James 4 verse 1 says, asks this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James is saying, why are there fightings and quarrels among you? It's from the bad root. It's from your desires. And Desires that may not be in and of themselves actually wrong. They may be desires for good things, but they're out of place. Sometimes people get the idea from the way we talk about anger that anger is this pressurized substance inside of me that's not really a part of me. You know, we talk about blowing off steam or he's really hot under the collar. And you get the idea from these metaphors and terms of expressions that anger is not really a part of me. It's just something inside of me. But anger is really a moral act of the whole person. Your emotions, your mind, your will, your imagination, your judgments, all of that. And it's a window on our souls and on our real desires and loves. So when anger shows up, we must search out the roots of it in our lives. Number three, we need to actively come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We must actively come to Him. The apostle in verse 20 is contrasting the Gentiles, the way unbelievers tend to live. And he's just described that in verses 17 through 19. And he says that this is the way they live, but verse 20, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. He's, he's bringing them back to the way they came to know Christ. And how did they do that? They came to know Christ through, 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 through repentance and faith, through coming to Christ, turning from their sins. Colossians 2 verse 6 says it this way, As you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in Him, so continue to live in Him. How did we receive Him? In repentance, a sincere turning from sin, a resolve to be done with sin, even though we won't perfectly achieve that in this life. It's a change of heart centered around God and no longer around ourselves. In other words, repentance and faith do not say, I don't want to be angry because it causes trouble in my life, because it makes me uncomfortable, because it uh, gives me a bad reputation around others. That's not repentance. Repentance is in the terms of Psalm 51 where David prays, Lord, against Thee, Thee only, have I sinned. It's an orientation toward the Lord. It's a turning to Him. And faith then comes and realizes our own poverty of soul and rests on Jesus Christ and His cross and realizes that only Jesus Christ can change us from within. It takes the power of the resurrection of Christ. And it's a reliance on Him. It's asking Him for help and saying in light of Philippians 4, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. You see, repentance and faith come in, and that's the way, that's the instrumentality by which we deal with both, both the fruit, the bad fruit, 
of anger and the root in our hearts. It doesn't say, I'm going to clean up my life. It says, Lord, please clean up my life. Give me power to do this, to exercise self-control, to get rid of the wrong desires that rule me and the wrong fruits that come out when they do. And it needs to be daily steps of repentance and faith. So when it, wherever you see anger cropping up in your life and you know it's wrong, you need to exercise repentance and faith and go to Jesus Christ right then and there or shortly thereafter. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with it before the sun sets. Think of it as weight lifting. Some of you weight train and, you know, you get the weight and you do these bench presses and things like that. And you do so many repetitions and so many sets. And the goal is, as the days and weeks and months go by, you increase the weights that you can lift. Well, think of that in terms of the spiritual realm, in terms of your spiritual growth in Christ. You can't deal with your anger just once in a while. It's like all of our other sins. We need to be dealing with them every day. And we need to be strengthened in Jesus Christ, turning away from sin, trusting in Him. And as we grow in Christ, in a sense, we can lift more and more weight. But you have to deal with the small sins as well as the big sins. You can't walk into the gym and say, give me the 400-pound bench press, and you, know, and you haven't lifted weights ever. You know, you're going to collapse if you try to do that, unless you're really, really big, I guess. Well, think of it in this way. I like the, the C.S. Looks. The, the C.S. Lewis children's books, and one of them, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this boy by the name of Eustace who begins his adventure in Narnia as a very self-centered, rude, unkind young man, boy. He's always putting himself first. He's always seeing himself as better than everyone, he, than everyone else and expecting everyone else to serve him. And then comes a turn in the which has a profound impact on Eustace. On one of the islands on their journey, Eustace goes off alone and stumbles on a dragon's lair filled with this dragon tre treasure. It's sparkling there in all its be beauty and wealth. And he fills his po pockets with di diamonds and puts on an especially beautiful bracelet on his arm. Then he falls asleep. But when he wakes up, he eventually finds out to his great terror and dismay that he has become a dragon. And for days and weeks, he keeps this form. It's because of the bracelet that he put on his arm. And his fellow adventurers and the other kids involved in this adventure are trying to find him so they can leave the island. And finally, they figure out the mystery of what happened to him. But even though they know... There's nothing that they can do to help him. They can't take him with them on the ship in this dra dragon form that he's in. And then one night, the lion, Aslan, appears to Eustace, and he tells him to bathe in a clear stream, and his wound will be healed, the wound from the bracelet that's been digging into his arm all this time. But first, Aslan says, he must undress. He must take off the dragon skin somehow. So Eustace somehow does that. He tears and claws at the skin and the scales that he's wearing until almost like a snake shedding its old skin, he tears off this dra dra dragon scale. But as soon as he's done it, he sees 
there is the same kind of scale and dragon skin underneath. So he does this, this, this whole thing again. And then one more time, three times, all to no avail. You see, he can't change himself. And the lion then says to him, you will have to let me undress you and take off the skin. So Eustace tells this story. He says, he's telling this story to his friends, and he says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he describes Aslan tearing off his dragon skin and having him bathe in the stream and dressing him in new clothes. And Eustace is restored to being a boy again, but a very different boy than he had been before. So clearly, Lewis is picturing the transformation that Jesus Christ brings in someone's life. And if we are talking about anger or any sin, we must begin by realizing that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that truly brings an axe to the root of our sin. And so we must come to Jesus Christ in, repent, in repentance and faith for Him to tear off the skin, as it were, and to change us from within. Well, this brings me to my fourth point. We must put off anger in its specific expressions and replace it with mercy. Put off anger in its specific expressions and replace it with something else, with mercy and grace. We see this theme throughout Ephesians 4 of this scriptural call to put off and to put on. And it's all based on who we already are in Christ. We would say that the New Testament is the New Testament imperative be something or do something is based on the indicative you already are something or someone. In other words, what I'm saying here is that Paul begins this section saying, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. And it says, it's, he's basically saying, you've been given new life in Christ. You've been made a new person in Christ. Now live that way. In other words, he gives the command based on who we already are. And that's where the power comes from. But we need to live it out in very specific ways. Then there comes this whole section of put on this, put off that, don't do this, do that. And with anger, the same thing is true. He says, get rid of or put off all bitterness, rage, and anger. And then verse 32 comes to put on, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. We've already talked about the necessity of repenting, turning away from sin, looking to Christ. But I want to highlight here that we need to do that time and time again. We need to, when we sin, immediately search our hearts and confess our sin to God and seek to shorten the length at which we're angry. Let not the sun go down on your rest, wrath. Exercise more self-control. Seek to be less hurtful in the way that we express it. Verse 
29 speaks about our words. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. In other words, not only have negative kind of talk, but positively words that build up those around us. In other words, we cannot merely put off anger because it's like the natural realm. Nature won't allow a vacuum. You know, you, you just don't have a vacuum. Something will fill that space. In other words, to put off anger, you must put something else in its place. You must put on kindness, compassion, forgiving one another. That's the kind of thing. In other words, bless those who curse you. Instead of being angry with them, pray for them. I'm glad I'm not preaching this sermon series a few years ago when my daughter was in high school basketball. Of all the sports I've ever played, and I've played a lot of sports and coached a lot of sports and been a parent for kids in a lot of sports, soccer, baseball, softball, tennis, basketball is the most trying in terms of my sanctification for anger. And the reason is you're right there close to the action, and there's so many fouls. And things that you see that maybe the referee doesn't see. It's impossible to referee those games and see it all. You know, but a few years back when Merwin was playing high school ball, oh, it was a trying time in the sanctification of my life. And I would have to be praying before every game, Lord, have mercy on me. All the parents at high school, public high school would be screaming and some of them swearing at the ref, you know, and... You know, I can remember one time Merwin was really hacked hard, and, and I just yelled, that was a foul! You know, ah, justice! We want justice here! How are we even just describing that? Brings those feelings to mind. Well, the, the God's goal in my life, and I came to understand, is not only don't enter sinful anger, but replace that anger with something else. Maybe pray for that referee who's being yelled at by both sides. You know, uh, maybe pray that I would exhibit Christ-likeness to the parents who were around me. In other words, replacing sinful anger with mercy. And the Lord certainly worked a lot in my life in those days. I can't say that I overcame it completely, but it was a real sanctifying experience. And so, you need to put off anger in its specific expressions and replace it with mercy. Finally, the ultimate way we must be putting on, keep focusing on the love of Jesus Christ. When, it, when you think about what we need to put on in the place of anger, the ultimate thing is that we need to put on Jesus Christ. We need to keep focusing on the beauty of Jesus Christ our Lord, His glory as it's held out to us in the gospel. Verse 20 again says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him. And literally, it's actually, surely you heard Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. We need, when it comes to dealing with our anger and our sin, the center of our focus cannot be the other person. It cannot even be our own anger or our own selves. No, it should be the Lord Jesus Christ, His character, His amazing love for us, His cross, His substitutionary death that gives us life. That's why Paul concludes in verses that I didn't read in chapter 5 that conclude this part in 
transfer into the next part. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's the apostle hammering home this point of keep focused in that you are a dearly loved child of God. Be imitators of God. Focus on what he's done. Remember that he gave himself up as a fragrant offering to God. If you've ever run a race like a 100-meter dash, you're probably being told by coaches, look, don't look at other runners around you. It'll slow you up. Especially don't look back. That will slow you down a lot. Look at the finish line. Well, Jesus Christ is the finish line. He's the goal. He's the prize. Hebrews 12 says we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you are going to put to death the anger in your life, if you're going to put to death any sin in your life, you must be drinking deeply of Jesus Christ himself. You must be putting on Jesus Christ. In Charles Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities, a man named Charles Darney has been sentenced to death by guillotine. And he waits in the Bastille for someone, for his sentence to take place. It's going to be the next day. But Sidney Carton, a man who strongly resembles Darnay, breaks into the jail with a few friends and knocks Darnay out. And Carton exchanges clothes with him, and his friends steal the unconscious Darnay out of the jail. And Carton then waits to die in Darnay's place. It's a very moving scene. And the next day, a young woman who's also condemned to die comes up to this man who's done this deed, and they're going to the guillotine at this point, and, her, and she comes up to talk to him, and her eyes get really big when she realizes that it's not Darnay. It's someone else taking his place. And she says to him, are you dying for him? And he says, yes, for him and his wife. He was in love with the woman as well. And then this woman takes his hand and says, stranger, it's going to be hard for me to die. But if I can hold the hand of someone so brave, so courageous and loving as you, I can do it. And they go to their death. This woman was smitten by the wonder of the substitutionary sacrifice made by this man for someone else. How much more when the Holy Spirit shows us what Jesus Christ has done for us, will we be able to put to death the sin in our lives? And so what are the situations of temptation to anger in your life this week? Maybe it's dealing with a certain customer or a certain person at your job or school, or maybe it's a relative, maybe it's even a close family member at home who just really pushes your buttons. And in fact, that's usually where anger is felt and expressed most easily with those we're nearest to. Where is Jesus Christ calling you to be like him in very specific ways in your life this week and to actively put on compassion and Christ-likeness? Are you willing to go to him for the only true cure, just as Eustace had to have Aslan tear off that dragon skin, so Jesus Christ is at work in our lives to tear away the sin that still remains and by His Spirit to make us trophies of His grace to bring Him praise. May the gospel be the axe that cuts down sinful anger in each one of our lives this week 
as we seek to give glory to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are amazed at the love of Christ. We want to be more smitten with it. We want to be so preoccupied with Jesus Christ and so enthralled by the beauty of Jesus that nothing else would take His place in our lives. Help us to do that this week, to look to You, to very specifically repent and turn from the things that rule us, the things that we want so much, the things that tend to take control of our lives, and to put these things off and to put on Jesus Christ, that You might be praised and that our hearts might be subdued and ruled by the one who is so gracious, Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.